Welcome to the Pot of Gold, where we talk all things precious metals and their markets. Today, we discuss Managed Money's third consecutive week of reducing exposure to gold, how the terminal limit of the Fed's tightening cycle may be higher than we think, and what the synchronized slowdown of the world's two largest economies means. I'm your host, Shay Russell, and joining me today is precious metals expert, Nick Frappel from ABC Refinery. Nick, how are you, mate? Very well, thanks, Shay. Good to see you again. It's great to be here. Now, Nick, we are going to get into things quickly because we have quite a beefy show for everybody today. Uh, first and foremost, let's start with gold. Now, spot gold has settled down in recent weeks. I believe it's around uh, 1920 at the time of recording. So with all the enthousi- coming, enthusiasm coming out of the market, what is managed money and open interest telling us about the sentiment in gold right now? Sentiment in gold right now, I should say. Managed money is telling us that the um, the managed money sort of sector, if you like, is reducing their exposure to gold for the third week running. Eighth um, of March, uh, weekend eighth of March, five hundred seventy one k, followed by almost one point six million. Uh, followed uh, the week ending twenty second by about one point three million. So since the um, really the week after the invasion, and since things you know sort of news has. Uh, geopolitical news, although it's been fast and furious, has has flowed out of that um, uh, situation in U- in Ukraine. Uh, what it's telling us is that people are reducing their exposure to gold on the futures side. Um, on the ETF side, they're actually growing their exposure um, by about four or five million ounces over that uh, roughly over that period. Um, but yeah, managed money is telling us. Longs are longs are reducing, and essentially, if you look at where they got in from a volume weighted average basis, and where they've exited on a volume weighted average basis, um, it's pretty successful profit taking. Um, that's what they're there for, and uh, they've uh, they seem to have done. If you look at it on, a, on an aggregate basis, that seems to have worked well. And the key thing is that the price stopped just five dollars below the August twenty twenty high. The weeklies uh, formed a really striking um, shooting star uh, formation or pattern on the on the candlesticks. That was then confirmed by a lower uh, candle the following week, and now here we are. We've just traded just below 1920 or about 1920 today. Price is sort of consolidating around about that level. So that's what that's certainly what the that in, that particular investor group is uh, telling us about their actions in gold. Now, before I move on to silver, I will not forget to do things in the right order today. Tell me, what is gold in the cloud behaving like? Well, it's uh, the, the, the thing I want to draw people's attention to when it comes to the weekly cloud is that um, we've got the uh, weekly standard line, which comes in at about 1907, 1908. That has been a really great support level for gold, not, not 1907 or, or eight, Particularly, but the actual uh, weekly standard line, which you know moves along as price develops um, fairly slowly. In the case of the weekly cloud, um, that is where it lies at the moment. Um, the uh, recent low was uh, held very well at the weekly standard line, and previously uh, through Feb and Jan, I think, if if I look at it, that uh, that held extremely well too. And I'm just going to have a quick uh, look at that. Um, yeah, if we go back, really, um, we've got to go back into December before we see a, a, a week where the spot gold price traded 
um, below the uh, weekly standard line for any any distance. You know, if it went below that level previously, it would, went through for you know maybe just a couple of dollars and a superb hold on that um, three weeks ago. So that's one of the levels I'd look at given the history of uh, of where it's been. History doesn't always repeat, but it's worth um, being aware of that that superb support line there. That's quite difficult to say, actually, superb support line. <laughs> I'll make you say that uh, three times fast after a couple of drinks later in the week. Um, yeah. Now, before I move on to silver, I've just got some notes here that I'm going over. And we had a fan, look, you and I have fantastic chats all the time. I could, you know, listen to you talk about the markets all day. But you made an interesting observation uh, yesterday when we were going over a few topics. Um, now, you touched on it quite lightly at the start of the conversation, saying that, you know, managed money has reduced its exposure to gold for three weeks running. But you noticed uh, in some of your, in the data you've been working with in the past couple of days that there's been an, you know, not just an outflow of gold, but there seems to be a move into cash. Yeah, that's right, actually. And i um, got to thank uh, uh, the, the, the data in this case comes from Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, just to uh, be clear about that. Um, I think if we look at weekly uh, flows, um, 13.2, and, and I think this really deals with the American sort of you know, cash and equity and bond universe. Um, but uh, weekly flows, $13.2 billion went into cash, $2 billion into gold. Um, presumably a lot of that um, is the ETF uh, uh, discussion. Um, and flows, very, very importantly, um, is the 11th consecutive week of money leaving fixed income. Um, quite significant amounts, I think it was 1.9 billion, roughly, if my memory serves me well, left the fixed income space. Uh, and quite a bit uh, left left the equity space as well. <clears throat> um, the interesting thing is, is that about six six and a half times amount the amount of money that went into gold went into into cash, and I think that's coming from um, sort of investors saying, well, it's an uncertain time. Um, some people are um, you know continuously paying the bid, but uh, paying or buying uh, buying dips. Um, but there's quite a few people who want to sort of de-risk and say, well, we'll wait for a better opportunity. That uh, probably explains the, the move into cash. Uh, look, I'd really like to sort of chew on this topic uh, may- maybe in our next podcast because, uh, A, we've got a lot to get yeah. through today, but I think it's quite revealing to look at the two different audiences that are moving away from um, the the markets and moving into cash. But before we go on to any of our other topics this afternoon, I do need to talk about silver because I know some people will not forgive me if we do not touch on silver. Nick, tell me, we've got silver back down at 25 US dollars per ounce at the time of recording. What is the weekly cloud signaling about silver? And also, um, what's managed money doing with silver right now? Well, why don't we look at managed money um, first? Um, so in the week ending the 22nd, um, the outflow of longs in the managed money space was 23 and a quarter million ounces, more or less. That's a reduction of uh, 7.5%. Um, it's the uh, second week where we've seen outflows in the managed money space. Shorts, um, really, really fairly trivial uh, change, you know, 3%. Um, total managed money longs, by the way, as of 22nd, uh, 288 million ounces long. Um, total managed money shorts, 68.8, 69 million ounces long. So that reduction, uh, 2 million ounces, about 3%. Um, net net positioning, 200, 
20 million approximately. So um, what we're seeing is a little bit of lightening up again from the from the managed money, but certainly not a wholesale um, exit, of course, by any means. Now, looking at the cloud, what we're seeing is, uh, you know, about a month ago, the the price hit the uh, cloud top, um, poked its head above, um, made a high um, around about the 27 level, and then it closed um, as a, a what's called a doji candle, where the open and the close um, basically the same. It's a really pronounced doji candle where the price closed right on the um, cloud top, 2575 thereabouts, and then dropped pretty heavily. Um, it then held the uh, weekly uh, turning line and then popped up again. And it's really just rattled back and forth within the cloud. Um, and that's often a, a feature that within the cloud, you may get a bit of volatility as it just pings back and forth um, between a couple of, you know, perhaps between the roof, the, the, the cloud top, and some other support, either the cloud base or one of the you know, major lines, the turning or the, 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 the standard line. So it's kind of suppressed, if you like, by the cloud top. It's not being able, not able to sort of get out above the cloud top. And um, that's the level really, you know, you want to see it above 2580, a close there that'll get it, um, get it back above the cloud top again, but it's, it's got that technical resistance. Still quite friendly to silver overall. Um, I think some of this is just driven by um, a weakening of, of gold and a weakening of of, uh, of crude, some extent as well from the industrial demand side of silver. The fact that you know probably um, what we're seeing in terms of inflation, rising energy costs, and so on, and fairly broad-based inflation, quite likely to um, create a certain amount of demand destruction in, in in economies across the world that might bite into silver demand. I think that's where we're at. All right, Nick, we're going to switch gears and we're going to get into the macro part of our conversation today. And once again, we find ourselves discussing the Federal Reserve Bank and their policy decisions and the uh, the potential outcome that they may have. Now, in the 12 days since the end of the March FOMC, Fed Chair Jerome Powell has been clear that markets need to prepare themselves for rapid and aggressive rate increases. So we're going to touch on a couple of the uh, potential implications of these policies in a moment. But first, I want to address are what you called the terminal height of the Fed funds rates. Now, as we discussed in our most recent episode, episode 12, uh, this tightening cycle could see rates end around, say, 23 to 2.5% mark. Um, but as you noted recently, there's others within the Fed branches that are pushing for a much higher level than that. Can you please expand on this? Yeah, sure. Certainly, um, the... Um, the um uh, Bullard from the St. Louis Fed is uh, is certainly one of the hawkish um, uh, parties, and uh, he he has been fairly hawkish for a while. Uh, I think San Francisco Fed as well. There 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 is certainly a group of um, fairly hawkish um, uh, Fed uh, members, including including um, the Chairman uh, Chair Jerome Powell. Uh, so it's a it seems like. Um, the, the hawks have pretty much most of the running in terms of the dialogue. Also, quite a few of the um, major sort of bulge bracket banks uh, chiming in as well with some fairly um, aggressive uh, uh, sort of uh, thoughts on where the terminal terminal level, the terminal level being the high before which the Fed may actually go the other way and start rolling off uh, the tightening program. But um, for example, Citigroup expects. Two point two two and three quarter percentage points of increases this year, and more in twenty twenty three, 
And that would take the benchmark rate to about three and a half to three and three quarters percent. That's um, certainly very high. And it's almost one percent higher than the level that the Fed itself is signaling. Um, they're not alone in this. There's certainly uh, quite a few um, who, who are sort of sharing those views. The thing about that from a, um, a tightening point of view is that at some point tightening and at some point um, high energy prices, um, you know, there is a risk that we all of these th- things are a prelude to um, some kind of economic slowdown or recession. Um, so how tight things can get before you trigger that, um, that would, that's the, 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 the issue is, is what are you worried about most? Are you worried about a, a slowdown or are you worried about um, not keeping some kind of lid on inflation? If you're worried about keeping a lid on inflation, then certainly this kind of terminal level, uh, 3.5 to 3.75% doesn't look that outlandish. But then what, what happens in the year to follow? is, um, you know, is, is, is definitely going to be a concern. We're going to come back to what you just said there in a second, uh, but I, there's a sort of a follow-up to this aggressive rate um, tightening cycle that we're seeing that I do just want to touch on. Uh, some of us have longer memory than others in the markets. Uh, now, if we look back to a similar aggressive cycle back in 1994 where the Fed raised rates from that February um, and I believe there was something like a 225 basis point increase, sometimes in 50 basis point and 75 basis point hikes came through in a very short period of time. Now, these swift increases contributed to the tequila crisis of 1994 where the value of the Mexican peso collapsed. So is there any noise coming from the Fed or officials or anybody else in your circle about the potential impact on dollar-denominated debt based on these rapid hikes that we might be seeing soon? In specific terms, not really, um, but that's not because there aren't those concerns. I think that perhaps the answer is not really because um, there's so many follow-on effects, both domestically and internationally, um, when you have that rapid phase of tightening. And um, I think people have been concerned for quite a while about what would happen to uh, dollar-denominated debt held by um, overseas parties, um, as well as uh, mortgage uh, borrowers, um, you know, in the States. And, uh, and, and the fact that, the, you know, they're at the sort of the cutting edge of the tightening phase, but the tightening phase itself is shared by you know quite a number of other central banks. So not specifically, and I think perhaps the other thing to say about that is because um, when you have unintended consequences, usually it's the unintended consequences that you don't spot um, that come to you know give you a fright. Uh, whereas perhaps the ones that you are aware of, there's because there is an awareness of them, people make um, accommodation to try and uh, avoid that kind of problem. But um, yeah, I think, I think you can say for sure that unintended consequences um, lurk, uh, you know, everywhere in the, in the tightening phase. Um, Nick, I'm glad you mentioned mortgages in there because that's actually the next subject I do want to touch on too, because it's not just dollar denominated debt that is an outlier risk here because the consumer is going to be heavily impacted in America by these aggressive rate hikes. Now, now I saw you smile there. You know I have a thing for talking all things consumption data, but we will spare everybody that topic today because I do want to talk about how there is the trifecta of pressures happening in the US right now. We've got high housing costs, high energy, and high food prices. So these are uh, significant and they're probably only just emerging pressures right now. But you rightly pointed out just so about mortgage pressure and there's not just – 
problems in the US property marketing arising, but there's also ongoing problems in the Chinese uh, property sector as well. So tell me, what are the risks here of the two world's largest economies having troubles in their property sectors converging? It's an interesting time because uh, I I think without... um, painting uh, with too broad a brush that when we had the GFC, and, and by the way, nobody's you know, predicting sort of any kind of crisis necessarily. That's not what we're here for. But um, clearly there were um, tremendous issues around um, lending to the US property market, not only within America, but also without America, uh, where um, there was linkages and people's and banks' exposure to mortgage-backed securities and uh, and and other uh, securitized um, assets, uh, and that was the sort of ripple effect through um, wholesale money markets that created such a problem in the GFC. Um, saying that, quite a few other places did not have the issues with their property market. Probably the UK, the UK certainly did to some extent, and the US did, but this is. Um, the world's number one economy, and also with the world's number two economy, issue is here. As I think you, you know, as you touched upon, is that in the world's number one economy, you've got an issue where um, prices are rising. The the affordability of property is really high, or the unaffordability of property, I should say, is really high. And with rising prices and this really really sharp rise in the in the price of thirty year uh, mortgage debt, um, what you uh, might expect to see is a a, a slowdown in the um, in in consumption, and as you pointed out yesterday, consumption is two thirds of the U.S. economy. So that's not something anybody really wants to see. Um, that's the channel in in America. In China, uh, the issue, which is well kind of you know out there and well 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 rehearsed, well understood, is the um, perhaps more the construction end of the of the. Uh, property sector, that's about almost 40%, I think, the total property um, sector, if you include all of the uh, businesses that um, fall into that sort of under the umbrella of property. Um, Now, that's going to be a different channel, but it's more about issues around perhaps not so much consumption, but issues around indebtedness, property overhang, um, wealth effects uh, from property uh, the property market not rising as it was, in fact, um, falling, um, and that property that that too can express itself through consumption, but actually might be more might be I say more apparent through other channels such as banks um, finding that they're holding um, distressed debt or dis- of, of different types um, via, via the different construction companies, which are obviously you know mired in issues and have been mired in issues for over a year now. Um, this year, uh, one of the things that's sort of quite quite topical is that uh, more and more Chinese property companies are unable to declare their um, sort of audited financial statements by March the 31st um, for a whole bunch of reasons, um, but uh, mainly saying that you know people have moved on and things just aren't quite working out, but it's not a good sign. But yeah, both to have that degree of Synchronicity, if you like, in the world's two largest economies is and via, via property, which is such a major motor of, uh, of, 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 the, of both economies in different ways. That's certainly really worrying. 
Now, we're going to, going to wrap up with my final question today, and incidentally, we're still going to be talking about China and their unrelenting fixation with COVID zero. Um, now, in the past week, uh, oh, yes. in the past week, I believe Shanghai, I think they've, it's a city of 25 million people. So basically, the population of Australia uh, has been forced into lockdown again as authorities attempt to micromanage caseloads um, pretty much while the rest of the world li- learns to live with COVID. Why is China continuing to pursue this policy? I think there are two reasons, um, and this is a completely, you know, amateur take, of course, but I think there are two reasons. One reason is is that um, although there are quite strong policies uh, trying to control COVID in Hong Kong, um, COVID is ripping through Hong Kong and... um, Obviously, Hong Kong is a kind of a doorway to China, a doorway to mainland China, um, and the new territories about um, Guangzhou. So, um, I think they're concerned that any 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 opening could allow what's going on in Hong Kong to spread to major urban centres very very quickly, and I think that's a reasonable fear. Um, you know, it, it, no one. I don't, you know, I don't think we're all anyone's a fan of of zero COVID, but you could understand that take if you're thinking that um, the you know Hong Kong is right next to you, it's part of you, and it's got a problem. It's got a problem despite um, sort of putting uh, sort of controls in place. That that I think is part of the explanation. The other part of the explanation is that a while ago zero COVID uh, strategies or zero COVID policies appeared to be working. If they are no longer working, it is not easy for the Chinese state to pivot rapidly and change that um, sort of directive. So if they do change that directive, um, there'll be a lot of uh, setting the scene first via um, state kind of media and so on, uh, and sort of perhaps outriders to official media, um, explaining why it's quite a good idea to change this policy, but that will take time. And I don't think um, we've reached that point yet. Um, And we certainly, I don't think we'll reach that point as long as things continue to be a struggle, um, certainly in Hong Kong and perhaps in some other uh, mainland cities. That's my take on it anyway. All right, Nick, well, that brings us to the key takeaway portion of today's podcast. And I have to say, I think my key takeaway here is the synchronicity of the two world's largest global economies um, potentially facing a slowdown at the same time. Now, again, this is not calling for a black swan event, but it's certainly something that we should be uh, paying attention to because uh, with uh, slowing down in the consumption sector, which is a huge driver of the US economy, and slowing down in the Chinese property sector, which is a huge uh, part of Australia's economy, um, these are definitely events that we should continue to pay attention to. And it will uh, it'd be interesting to see how the Fed's policies impact this going forward. Uh, however, what is your take on what you think the most important part of today's conversation is. I'd agree with you. I think that part is um, important. I think the other thing which we didn't talk about, so maybe it's a bit, it's a, I'm cheating here by bringing it in and maybe we'll talk about it next time, is um, what's going to happen with energy prices um, on a broad-based level going forward. Um, I've got some really interesting targets that suggest a lot higher in crude, but for various short-term reasons, um, you know, the prices sort of come off slightly and I think given also that gold has a reasonable um, correlation, positive correlation with crude, uh, and of course, 
helped by perhaps slow growth in the aftermath of very high crude prices. That's an interesting thing. But again, it's something it's something we didn't talk about in detail. So I, I'm going to say that on a macro level, <laughs> we didn't talk about it at all. But uh, I think in a macro level, <laughs> uh, I'm going to I'm going to second you and say that um, the the ongoing uh, issues around property in the US and in China, they're going to remain interesting all through 2022. All right, Nick, I love how you've actually closed out the podcast with a whole new topic that I guarantee you I will pester you about to have that conversation because you do know I have a newfound love for the energy markets. Yeah, absolutely. We all love energy. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, Nick, I know you have a meeting that you are currently running late for, so I am going to let you go. I want to thank you very much for being here and I look forward to our dedicated energy conversation in our next podcast. An absolute pleasure. Thanks, Shay. That was great. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to get a better understanding of the technical indicator Nick uses, the Ichimoku Cloud. It's available on most trading platforms. Alternatively, you can check the show notes over at abcrefinery.com forward slash podcast. Here you can sign up to receive more information from Nick Frappel, including his monthly report where he incorporates technical analysis alongside macro market commentary. That's all from us today at ABC Refinery. We look forward to seeing you next time.